we never went past a Japanese body without shoving a bayonet into it in this battle if it wasn't obviously dead. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. children. Going to I could quite never often. not go back. They were my friends and, and they felt the She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Michael Veach is a well-known author, actor, comedian, and former ABC TV and radio commentator. His books include the critically acclaimed accounts of Australian airmen in World War II, including Flack, Fly, Heroes of the Skies, 44 Days, and Barney Greytracks. We've had Michael on this podcast before. You can jump back to Season 1 in 2017 and catch the bonus episode titled Australian Airmen's Untold Stories with Michael Veach. Angus Horden and I both worked on Michael's last World War II book, Barney Greytracks, From Bomber Command to the French Resistance, The Stirring Story of an Australian Hero. You can find out more about that book at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash book. Also look at the episode description for this podcast to find more episodes about that story. Today, I welcomed Michael back on the show to talk about his ninth book, Turning Point, The Battle for Milne Bay. 1942. I'm Alex Lloyd on a rainy day here in London, speaking to Michael Veach, who's having a sunny day on Phillip Island. Michael, welcome back to Life on the Line. It's a rainy day on Phillip Island, actually. Oh, is it? Google lied to me. (laughs) We're both stuck indoors together then. Indeed we are. Nice to talk to you again. So are you still in full swing on your book tour or is it on the wind down? I'm heading to the Byron Bay Writers Festival this week to talk all about it, which I'm really looking forward to. One of Australia's premier writers festivals now. And there's a couple more smaller ones after that too. So, and and a few more interviews. And uh, it's a slow burn, this tour. I was on with some of Australia's radio legends during the week, such as Mr. John Laws, who is still going. Yes, believe it or not, at A84, broadcasting every day on 2SM. And we had a great chat. And um, I was on the ABC overnight program and quite a few others too, besides. And uh, well, it's a great story to tell, and, and and it's an easy story to tell. It's one of those amazing stories of the Second World War that really writes itself, as they used to say. Well, let's get the overview of it, Michael. So, turning point: the Battle for Milne Bay, 1942. I mean, let's just start with the basics for someone who does not know much about this uh, period of the war in the Pacific. What people don't realise about what happened. To Australia at the beginning of the Second World War when the Japanese entered the war was that it was really the equivalent of being invaded by aliens, by this, by sort of terrible alien monsters. And I say that because even though we'd been fighting the Germans for a couple of years, when the Japanese entered the war, it was a completely different ball game. To start with the war, which in many areas of Australian society had seemed very distant because it was distant on the other side of the world, suddenly not only was war in our backyard, but it was being waged by an enemy of whom we had utterly no understanding 
whatsoever. Australia was a very, very insular, occidentally centric country in those days. We, even though we were in the middle of Asia, we had very little idea what Asia was like. We had very little idea of the culture or the politics. And so when Japan, who'd been nursing this daring and dastardly plan for really since the time that they were forced open in the middle of the 19th century from their couple of centuries of complete isolation. By the time that happened, we really had no kind of concept of who these people were and what their intentions were. And when we started to realise that it was utterly terrifying, it wasn't like being invaded by Europeans or being attacked by Europeans. It was being under attack from an utterly, utterly unknown entity, almost, as I said, like being attacked from Mars or something like that. So what had happened is that their initial blitz, which of course began with Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941, but it wasn't just Pearl Harbor. They launched this sort of simultaneous sort of spidering invasion of all sorts of Hong Kong and uh, uh, various colonial outposts. Malaya was also the attack and the, the, the invasion of the Malayan Peninsula got underway that day as well. So it was this lightning force of unbelievable destruction and aggression that was launched in an incredibly short space of time. And for, as we know, for, for months and months, it was was completely successful. It completely bamboozled. Even people who knew that Japan was about to get into the war had no idea of the scale of their intentions or the scale of their aggression. And so when it began to happen, we down here at the bottom of the world were utterly sort of dumbstruck by it. We couldn't believe what was happening. It was unthinkable that these colonial bastions to the north were falling. I mean, it was unthinkable that the Dutch East Indies was going under, that Malaya was being swallowed up, that the great fortress of Singapore was being threatened. And then when that actually fell in February, it was the whole country felt like the world had completely turned on a sixpence and nothing was familiar. And then the Japanese kept on going towards us. Now, let's not get into the weeds about the business of whether Japanese intended to invade Australia. I actually don't believe that they did intend that because I don't believe I think they, they were could have done it. Well, I think they were surprised by their own success getting as far and quickly as they did as well. Yes, yes, they were. And in that, exactly what you said made it all start to unravel, as we now know in the long term. Because if they had kept their success going, who knows what would have happened. I hate historical myths, but they've all said that if Japan had actually kept rolling on, if they'd risked their supply lines a bit after Rabaul and kept on going to Port Moresby, they probably could have taken Moresby because it was basically... Undefended. And if they'd got Moresby, they would have had this natural deep water port from which to control all the northern sea lanes above Australia. And if they controlled them, then Australia was effectively checkmated out of the war. They didn't need to actually physically invade and hold us something that wasn't physically possible for them or basically anyone anyway, because we're just too bloody big and empty. So they did pause in February and March. 1942, particularly after the fall of Rabaul, the Australian base in New Britain, because they, as you said, they just didn't think it was going to be that easy. But it was, and they couldn't quite believe it. So they kind of sort of took stock about, whoa, it can't be, it can't be like this. So let, let, let's just pause and maybe think of even expanding our plans. Let's think of expanding to capture Fiji and New Caledonia and make this whole enormous kind of 
as they called um, Southeast Asian co-prosperity sphere, which is the bizarrely dubious name that they were to give to their Southeast Asian empire. And they all thought it was basically over, that they could actually slow down a little. They'll take Moresby in good time. The Americans haven't even got their act together. Australians are just um, a little colonial outpost whose troops have been, you know, were sort of a, a reasonably good fight in Malaya, but they weren't able to stop us in any meaningful way. We're also spread out across the world. Like, you know, we've got troops up in North Africa and we're... Yes, yes. We're busy with the European... Uh, Distracted by the European theatre despite the threat on our border. And because I agree with you about the likelihood of Japan or unlikelihood of them invading, but I guess the Australians, just for context of the troops that'll be fighting the Japanese eventually in Milne Bay, they, of course, don't have that lovely hindsight or logistical overview. They just see this force they don't quite understand rolling, steaming towards them, whereas... Like you said, the French understand the Germans. There's a lot of history there. The Australians That's don't right. have that relationship with Japan at all, a cultural under- commonality. No, no, no. So it's this terrible thing rolling towards them at this horrifying pace and you know, bombing Darwin and mid-42 Sydney Harbour. And so it looks grim, even yes. though even if the yes. reality might not actually have been that way. Yes, and you can understand the Japanese thinking that. I mean, now capturing thousands of British and Commonwealth and Australian soldiers at Singapore who just sort of meekly wandered into captivity, as we know, something unthinkable in their very brutal military Bushido code. We had no air power to speak of. Our Navy was a token force. And so they just thought, well... We'll just establish our supply lines a bit more and keep on going a little bit later. Now, they reckon that pause was actually terribly fatal because they did need to seal their deal. They did need something like Port Moresby, as I said, for its strategic importance, to lock down that southern border, that southern edge of what they proposed to do in Southeast Asia, have this bizarre sort of cooperative supposed empire. But they didn't. And there was this break of a few months up until the middle of 1942. They did start to look at Moresby and how we're going to take it. As we know, they landed troops on the northern coast of New Guinea, just to the north of Moresby at um, Ley, and began the great Kokoda campaign. But they had another plan to take Moresby overland with um, General Horry's South Seas Force. But they had another plan as well, because they looked at the map and at the far east tip of Papua, there's this very strange looking test tube shaped bay. It's about 30 miles long and 10 miles wide. And they thought, goodness, look at that. If they could sail into that and establish a base there, that would be a very short flying distance from Moresby and much more easy to attack Port Moresby by air, and possibly overland as well, than it would be to try and to negotiate the awful hump of the mountains of the Owen Stanley Ranges from the north. So they had plans to do it. They, they had plans to use this area in some way as a kind of a, an adjunct to their northern invasion of Moresby, but also as a kind of shortcut to it itself, to sort of squeeze Moresby in a kind of pincer movement in a classic pincer movement. They had these sort of vague plans. One centred around a little island called, ironically, Samurai, not Samurai, but Samurai. And it was the uh, little island at the mouth of this bay, which is called Milne Bay, by the way. And the Australians had a little seaplane base there, and they planned to take that first and, and use that. They were a little bit undecided about what they wanted to do, but because they thought nobody was there, they didn't even have to rush. 
So they're kind of wasted time while the uh, the Japanese army and the navy bickered, as they bickered all throughout the war, because they detested one another about who was actually going to deliver this sort of coup de grace. Meanwhile, the Australians and the Americans, too, had seen the strategic importance of this Milne Bay place that nobody had ever heard of, except a few people running rubber plantations and coconut plantations there that had existed in the, colonial, in, in the pre-war colonial times. And they decided, well, we'll get a base there first. So they actually, quite quickly, as opposed to the Japanese sluggishness, in stark contrast to how they conduct the beginning of their Pacific campaign, the Australians and Americans actually did the work and started to build something at this end of this bay called Milne Bay. And in a very short time, thanks to the genius of American engineers and a small sort of expeditionary force that sailed up there and basically walked ashore and put their bulldozers ashore and said, well, we we need an airfield here, so let's start flattening this great big coconut plantation or part thereof and build an airstrip. So the American engineers in 24 days built an airstrip. Meanwhile, a garrison was slowly being built up to establish this as a base. Now, the Japanese were completely unaware of this and mainly, apart from their sort of hubris about not having to hurry, the weather in this place was extraordinary. Milne Bay is in the right in the middle of the tropics. It has its own unique tropical zone, two metres annual rain, so it pours all the time. It's one of the most heavily malarially infested parts of the entire planet. And uh, this particular time, the winter of 1942, was particularly rainy even for this part of the world. So when the garrison arrived of sort of elementary sort of garrison troops, militia troops mainly, who, as we know, were basically what we'd call the reserve now. And these young soldiers, all sparsely trained, completely unblooded in any kind of combat, were not permitted legally to travel and fight in outside Australian territory. But this part of New Guinea was Australian territory because we sort of colonised it at various stages from the 1880s and also after the First World War. So technically... The militia men could actually, for the first time, find themselves being sent what was essentially overseas. So it was really a technicality. So they started to arrive and realised what a ghastly place it was and they weren't particularly well looked after. The army sort of stuffed everything up. They had no concept of what the place was like. They gave them the wrong tents and didn't have proper mosquito repellent or mosquito nets and appalling catering. The roads were virtually impassable. So they these sort of soldiers building up from about sort of um, July 1942 basically found themselves as uh, road labourers the first few weeks trying to secure the place so they could actually run vehicles on it. And this build-up happened with relative speed. The Americans made the airstrip and put the, down the brilliant mast and interlocking metal matting, which uh, transformed just about any space you liked into an efficient airstrip, even though it was very muddy and incredibly wet. So gradually this build-up happened. And then they realised that it can't just be militia troops here. We actually need another brigade. So the one brigade of militia arrived and General Blamey realised, well, actually, it's not going to be enough. So they, they brought a brigade back from the Middle East, which was the 18th. And these were experienced soldiers, but not experienced in anything like the tropics. They'd been fighting in Tobruk and North Africa and places like that. So getting into the middle of August, amazingly enough, out of virtually nothing, a base of several thousand Australian soldiers had been built 
at this sort of ass end of the world in this terrible these terrible conditions where it rained all the time and they were fully expecting a Japanese attack at any moment because their intelligence and this is one of the stories in the book I couldn't get into because it's an amazing story but it's a book in itself of the breaking of the Japanese codes to discover their intentions at Milne Bay but they didn't know when they were going to arrive all they have though is a quickly thrown together base with a large bunch of green troops and a bunch of I suppose experienced but possibly fatigue troops as well coming to join them. Yes, yes, absolutely. A lot of these guys were worn down to the metal. They'd been through a couple of years fighting the Italians and the Germans in North Africa. They were brought back. They were sort of wrenched away from the 9th Division under considerable con- controversy because the, the um, British didn't want them to go, of course, that, that, but we, we know that story. They were given a little bit of rest in uh, when as, when they arrived in South Australia, some didn't didn't have any jungle training whatsoever. Some arrived in their khakis, which stood out like you know like white on black, relatively speaking, because all their khaki uniforms had been bleached by the sun. So they were were basically in sort of walking around in, in, in kind of you know <laughs> pale costumes in against the backdrop of a, a very dark green tropical jungle. Amazingly enough. The secret of the establishment of this base was kept so from the Japanese. The Australians on the ground could not believe that the Japanese didn't know that they were building up this base. In fact, the rather depressing rumour started to go around, oh, that's why they haven't attacked, because they're waiting for us to finish the base, then they're just going to walk in and take it, and it'll be theirs, which is quite um, despondent when you think about it, really. I mean, there's nothing more depressing than toiling away in this awful place to build a military base, suspecting your enemies, knowing you're doing just that, and just waiting for a time to, to come in and capture it. But nothing of the. But, but that actually wasn't the case at all. In, in fact, and it wasn't until a Japanese uh, reconnaissance area was just doing a, doing a flight over this little samurai island at the mouth of the of Milne Bay that they looked over and saw in the distance in these because the cloud cover is terrible. You see, I mean, it's one of the reasons the Japanese didn't discover it because you, you just can't see it because the, the weather's so bad, the cloud ceiling was so low. But one afternoon, they saw a couple of kitty hawks doing a circus, seeming to do a circuit way off in the distance. And they said, that's a bit strange. So with their binoculars, they looked. Uh, and then there was no engagement or anything, but they saw the flaps come down and them kind of disappear into the jungle. So it looks like, oh, are they landing on something? So they went back to their base at Rabaul and said, look, by the way, we're doing this reconnaissance uh, this afternoon and we saw two um, Allied aircraft seeming to land in the middle of the jungle. And said, oh, where's this? Oh, whoop, here somewhere. So the very next day, I think this was about um, August 4th, they sent over a small contingent of zeros and a couple of vowel antiquated monoplane fixed undercarriage dive bombers to have a bit of a poke around. And this was the first time they actually discovered it. So these Japanese pilots went up the bay, did manage to find this jungle strip, went down on it and to their utter astonishment flew low along this what became known as number one airstrip and saw all these kitty hawks, about 30 of them, parked in revetments, hastily constructed revetments. Then they flew over tents. Then they flew over vehicles. And they realised, oh, shit, they've actually built something here and we had absolutely no idea. The wonderful story of how they actually concealed it is quite brilliant because occasionally Japanese flights had sort of come very close to flying over and, and, the, and the soldiers and the airmen on the ground could hear Japanese aircraft stooging around. But orders were complete radio silence. Do not open fire with any anti-aircraft until you're under direct attack. And it kind of worked. The stories are like when the Japs were flying over before this day, everyone kind of went still like rabbits caught in the headlights. And, you know, some animals try to conceal themselves by, by, by just being really, really still and quiet. Well, it kind of worked. 
by the time the Japanese did discover something was there, it was a considerable military force and seeming to grow all the time. So then things then happened to start to, to, to move very, very quickly. The Japanese decided, well, this base must be attacked, but we don't want to attack it too much because we actually want this airfield. Those worst fears of some of the men on, on the ground sort of became real because the Japanese actually said, well, actually, this is quite good. If they've built something, we can just roll in and take it. There's no naval guns that we can see along this bay. It's basically a kind of a jungle. It's very deep water. We can get all our ships in there and we can land soldiers and take this airbase. And in a few hours, we can have Bettys and uh, Zeros fly over from Rabaul, land there, refuel, and Moresby, Bob's your uncle, is like under an hour's flying time away. So that's what they thought was going to happen. So very quickly, they started to um, assemble a reasonably large force of Japanese soldiers and Marines. Now, what happened is that the soldier contingent, the, the army contingent of troops who were quite experienced, dropped out because the Americans, thank goodness, attacked Guadalcanal just as the Japanese were preparing a major assault on Milne Bay. So vast amounts of their forces were diverted to the Great Guadalcanal campaign, which, of course, dwarfs our campaign, but ours was very important nonetheless. But what it did, it drew a lot of Japanese forces away from their uh, plan to take Milne Bay. Nonetheless, it went ahead and um, August 24th was the night that the Japanese finally came into the bay and went ashore. In the middle of the night, great stories involving a kind of chaotic movement of troops on the water because as you can imagine the roads were very muddy there was one basically old government track that had been built along the northern edge of the uh, bay which was terribly impassable at points so a lot of the transport was done by small boats going back and forth like Sydney ferries. In fact, one boat called the Bronzewing, there's a great story to it. It, it, it had been owned by Errol Flynn as his sort oh. of um, one of his party boats. And then it was uh, it was a little pleasure cruiser on Sydney Harbour in, in the 30s. And then somehow it ended up in New Guinea and it was right in the middle of the Battle of Milne Bay on That's the first <laughs> night. That's hilarious. Yeah, as some troops were being transported from the far eastern tip of the bay back towards the base, which was at a place called Gilly Gilly, I should have said. So Gilly Gilly was the main base, and there were several little settlements scattered along this 30-mile shore leading to the ocean. So one night, um, some troops were being brought back because they were slightly... A, a couple of companies were being brought back because they were too far extended out. And the new general in charge of us, of the Australians, who I'll get to in a moment, decided, these guys are too far out. Um, can, can you bring them back, please? So they were brought back, and there's one great story of one of three little ships transporting a company of Australian soldiers in the dark, putt-putting from east to west, and they see a big um, cargo ship. And cargo ships have been coming and going quite regularly over the last couple of weeks, so they come right up to it, and they're about to wave up to it, say, G'day, fellas, how are you? I thought they'd be Americans. And in the still of the night, they literally hear Japanese voices on their stern drilling or orders, and so they realise, shit, they're Japanese. So this little boat sort of just slowly slinks away into the darkness, and that's the first many realise that the Japanese are, are, are heading to begin the Battle of Melbourne Bay. Then a little while later, all hell breaks loose when some of these same men run slap bang in, into the Japanese Daihatsu motorised barges running back and forth, delivering Japanese marines to their landing point, which was the wrong landing point. They'd mucked it up. So the Japs got it wrong from the get-go. They were miles too far, unnecessarily too far to the um, east of their intended objective, which was the Australian base at Gilly Gilly. The Japanese intelligence for this battle was utterly abysmal. They had no proper maps, nor did the Australians, but the, the Japanese needed maps because they weren't actually there. 
They had no proper maps. They had no proper reconnaissance. They had no idea the size of the force they were up against. They didn't even know where the air base, which is what they wanted, the airstrip, they didn't even know where it actually was. They thought, look, it's somewhere up there. We'll put you ashore. There'll be no resistance. Just wander up towards the west and eventually you'll find it and take it and give us a signal, come in and land planes and that'll be it. That's literally what they thought. Way too cocky. And like you were saying earlier about they thought, oh, we can afford to slow down now. It seems a similar... I know. Yeah, amazing. Unbelievable cockiness in their approach to this battle. They would rue their cockiness in, in about three or four days' time. So the first skirmishes happened, and characteristically on this first night, the first Australian, this poor young fellow from um, Adelaide, a lot of South Australians and Tasmanians and Queenslanders in this um, battle. He was the first fellow to be uh, standing sentry at at one end of a patrol and sees three people coming towards him. And instead of foolishly ducking, because they'd heard boats and things like that, he said, who goes there? And was shot dead for his troubles. And that was the first real shot fired in anger. The battle lasted about 10 days. The Japanese initially pushed forward along this far worse terrain than they thought it was going to be. They'd completely underestimated, as we've discussed, every aspect of this battle and what they were up against. The Australian general was a man called Cyril Clowes, who was known as Silent Cyril. He was very taciturn, didn't communicate very much to the infuriation of General MacArthur and General Blamey. He didn't exaggerate his uh, successes and he didn't understate his uh, losses. He fought the battle on his own terms. He knew he was at a disadvantage. He had no control over the Japanese entering the bay, so he didn't know what was following up this little invasion force of about six or seven ships. It was a struggle fought uh, almost entirely in darkness because the Japanese had control of the place in in the night, but in the daytime, the 75 and 76 Dragon Kitty Hawks blasted them to pieces. And this is one of the great great stages of cooperation between the RAAF and the Army, when all the kind of prejudices between these two arms really fell away. At first light, the fellows flying the P-40s waited desperately for the dawn to come up, almost sort of starting their engines in the dark so they'd be ready to take off from this very primitive airstrip so they could be right up in the air and strafing anything that they could find. The Japanese kept trying to land their troops and land supplies along this dismal northern shore, but the Australians just blasted the bejesus out of them. They were to the detriment of of the Japanese, and it terrified them. They couldn't move in the jungle for the strength of the Australian air power. So the big engagements were fought in pitch black, usually in the rain, no lighting whatsoever, save from the flashes of um, hand grenades and muzzle fire. The bayonet was used a lot. It was very brutal. It was the first real time that Australians learned how brutal the Japanese were and that no quarter was, as they say, to be given or asked for. The climax of the battle was over one of the as-yet-uncompleted airstrips. The Japanese had managed to push several miles towards Gili Gili. They expected to take it in just a couple of hours. They had no idea that they were going to be fighting a 10-day campaign, and they weren't equipped to do so. They thought the airfield was just there, just behind where their boats were. But it wasn't, and he kept having patrols coming back to their landing and say, well, we can't find it, isn't there? Well, it's... It's just jungle. We don't know where it is. And so, well, keep on going. He said, well, so and so they, they kept on pushing and they kept on pushing and kept on not being able to find it, except they, they, did, they did find a lot of very aggressive Australian soldiers resisting as best they could. One of the earlier engagements was was at a place called KB Mission, which was an old Lutheran mission. I'm not sure if KB was a, was a Protestant or a Catholic mission, but well, I was never able to, uh, sources differ on, on that. 
But whatever it was, that was where one of the big engagements happened. And um, a big mistake by the Australians is that they hadn't brought anti-tank guns because they wanted to be more mobile. So the Japanese actually managed to land two light infantry Type 97, I think, cargo tanks, one of which is is an Anzac Hall and the Australian War Memorial, amazingly restored. And to see it the the other day when I was in Canberra was absolutely fantastic. But the Australians had no defence for these tanks at uh, the Battle of KB Mission, so they ran them up, pushed the Australians back and and um, kept on going up this um, jungle path until daylight came and then it all, you know, then it all stopped again. And then a couple of nights later was the climax of the battle where they reached to one of the as yet uncompleted airstrips only a couple of miles from Gilly Gilly and there they were stopped in an extraordinary night engagement that really resembles something out of the Western Front in World War I. On one side of the airstrip, the um, Western side, the Japanese lined up at night and on the eastern side was a mixed bag of Australians, both combat and non-combatant troops. American engineers who had um, decided they wanted to be part of the action, so they drove a couple of half-tracks up to the edge of this strip and waited for the Japanese attack, which happened at about 3am. And wave after wave of Japanese infantry tried to cross this two or 300-metre cleared strip through this um, coconut plantation, and not one of them got to the other side. And it was a massacre. It was an absolute massacre. Mortar fire was used brilliantly by the Australians, highly directed mortar fire. Rifle and machine gun fire was used in a very brutal defence of this airstrip that was successful and it broke the back of the Japanese. So for the first time, they started to retreat. Utterly unknown hitherto in the Second World War, the Japanese retreated. They had had no idea how to retreat. They had no orders to retreat. They didn't know what to do. So they just basically stopped. The survivors just basically started to, well, basically run. Order was sort of maintained a little bit, then as this, the pendulum turned the next morning and the Australians pushed back through the carnage of what they'd done to the Japanese Marines the night before, was first treated to their, to their refusal to surrender, realised that the Japanese had executed some of their own wounded, which was a great shock to them. A lot of Australian casualties were taken with snipers all along the government road leading back to the Japanese landing area. Things like, you know... Japanese playing dead, having the Australian troops walk past them and rearing up and throwing grenades. So that's when it became really brutal. A sub- the Australians just said, we never went past a Japanese body without shoving a bayonet into it in this battle if it wasn't obviously dead. And we realise that these people are completely, you know, <laughs> are completely something, fighting in a way that we've had no comprehension of. But And, and um, at the same time as Kokoda was, uh, was playing out, Milne Bay was, was playing out too. But Milne Bay has sort of been forgotten about because it's been overshadowed by the Great Kokoda Campaign. You made a comment there just before, Michael, that the Japanese, they sort of didn't quite know how to retreat. And my understanding of this battle of Milne Bay, it's the first time Imperial Japan actually suffered a land defeat since the 1850s. So that in itself is this sort of remarkable historical fact. Yes, yes, Absolutely. You've explained the context of why this battle is a turning point so well, that if they had taken that base, it would have been a quick flight, get Moresby, and then you've explained the consequences of effectively ruling Australia out of the war from there. And so that's a turning point in itself. It's a turning point in Japan's military history, in a way. But speaking about turning points in World War II, I'm going to make a personal comparison here. I was in uh, Normandy, France last weekend, and I was touring around. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was touring around the American beaches on D-Day, Pointe du Hoc, and some other sites in the area. And it's a theater of war I know you're professionally familiar with from some of your other books. 
But I bring it up because people listening to this, they will have heard of Omaha and Utah Beach, and they know about Dite from popular sources, even if it's just Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan. Yes, And, yes. you know, the whole Battle of Normandy is iconic and the fight against fascism. But by comparison, the Battle for Milne Bay 1942, how well remembered is that today? It's not remembered at all because it's hardly known, <laughs> which is so strange. And I, I think we've had this conversation before. If we were Americans, Alex, I think we would know about these amazing feats of arms that were performed in our name by our people. But we don't. There's something in the Australian psyche that kind of glosses over it or we don't. it takes us years to recognise it. But, I mean, don't forget, it was only until recently that the Kokoda campaign, we used to call it the Kokoda Trail, remember? It yeah. wasn't even an Australian word. A, a trail is not where they were. So now it's known as the Kokoda Track. But that indicates how little Kokoda was known and how important that is. So it does take a long while for these things to kind of seep through. It does bewilder me why we don't know things like Milne Bay. It certainly bewildered the poor bloody veterans who went through this hell and then the ones that got through it had to suffer the ignominy of no one knowing what they actually went through, which would have been awful. And I feel so sorry for them. And, and there's a few kind of people have come out of the woodwork since I've done this book saying, oh, my dad fought in that. And he always says it was... And they, were, and they were always a bit bitter about not being recognised for what they did. And there's this one, you know, he's a bit older than me, and he's a son of a former Bay veteran. He said, um, oh, Daddy used to say that we were the ones that first turned the Japanese around, but no one actually believed that. They thought he was just sort of making it up, which is so sad, isn't it? Because... <laughs> it is, and we're in such but, an era today of thank you for your service and getting veterans to tell their stories, and uh, people are so used to telling everyone else about their lives, whether it's through social media or something else, in that yes. sort of concept of a <laughs> yes. couple of generations yes. prior, it wasn't talked about or known, or like yes. even believed. Yes. That, yes. that sounds horrible, that, you know, if you go through something like that and you actually speak up and you're not listened to. Yes, yes, I, I, I can't think of anything worse. But look, all we can do is um, repair the mistakes of time. It's right and proper that we should know what, what happened. And also, and something I touch in the book at the very end, the Japanese don't know about it either. I was going but... to talk to you about that, yep. So for listeners' benefit, in your epilogue, you paint a very vivid picture of young Japanese students today in Tokyo at the Yushikan Wall Memorial Museum. And I was there in early 2017, and I remember exactly how you describe it, that brilliantly restored Japanese Zero fighter in the entranceway, and it's a great mix yeah. of artifacts and history from feudal and right down to modern day. But when you get to the 20th yeah. century section, and you see how the lead-up to and the content of World War II is totally rewritten. It's amazing. It's the most criminally misrepresented thing I've, I've ever seen. I mean, I had been told about Japanese denial of war guilt, or not denial, but lack of knowledge. I think that's what it is about what Japan did to people during the war. But it, I'm sad to say it, this exceeded my worst expectations. And I'm, I'm quite a mild person. And I, I remember standing there just feeling this boiling anger coming up, reading in this these sort of um, displays about how poor old Japan was persecuted in the 1930s by the dreadful Western powers and they had to stick up for themselves and that's why. And there's no, no mention of invading China, no mention of the Nanking massacre, no mention of POWs and what the awful, cruel things they did to people. And I found it really sad because getting back to Milne Bay, what happened at Milne Bay was one of the first realisations of Japanese brutality, not just towards us, but towards the people that they'd conquered. What they did to the Papuans is unbelievable. In fact, so much so that a uh, Queensland judge 
was ordered to oversee a kind of a royal commission into Japanese war atrocities committed around Milne Bay, and this became known as the Webb Report. It was so ghastly that Prime Minister Curtin had to actually suppress it for a couple of years because the details, even though they would do the cause of uh, uh, making us hate an already hated enemy, the details were so horrid that he didn't want it released. The Japanese turned on the Papuans big time at Milne Bay. They just, the cruelty of it beggars belief and the sadism of what they found and carried out. Like the Australians went through and discovered villages that the Japanese had occupied only for a couple of days and everybody had been massacred, not just massacred, but kind of tortured to death and hacked open and women, you know, indescribable things having been being done to women. They just couldn't believe it. And it affected them all very, very deeply for the rest of their lives. I'm sure. Well, next time we're both in Sydney, if you want your blood to boil again, I did actually, in the gift shop, I feel morally um, conflicted by this, but I bought actually a, an English version book of basically most of the displays and key information, just I found it such an interesting thing from an historiographic perspective from that museum. <laughs> it was so fascinating to sort of, I, I want to take this away and read it and study it compared to actual history books, but yeah, yes, it, it's yes. awful. Look, you're right, the best we can do is to acknowledge and remember and try and repair generations of ignorance or neglect, I suppose. And you're repairing that by writing a book about it. And we can help <laughs> repair it by reading and buying that book about it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Look, you know, I was guilty to start with myself. I knew a little bit about what had happened there. I knew, oh, it was somewhere up in New Guinea when I was first thinking about doing this story. But the more I went into it, it was like, this is not just part of this is a in itself an incredibly dramatic and important story and it, it is full of drama the word i use to describe what the battle was like often is gothic because it was so there's something very primitive and very medieval about the actual fighting the kind of strange switch between day and night where at the daytime the airplanes took over and the, and the japanese basically concealed themselves in, in the jungle and at night time they kind of came out like these kind of ghouls like something you know like the orcs in, in lord of the rings and started hacking their way forward with various degrees of success but the Individual stories are terrific too. The sort of just individual acts of uh, you know, sometimes stupidity, sometimes bravery are things that it was really important for me to discover because as I think, you know, you, you and I do this, it's really, it's so easy to just read military history and forget that there are human beings who actually went through real experiences. You know, when you sort of read about the exploits of this or that unit or this squadron, you forget that these are just ordinary people like you and I, who were sort of pitchforked into this madness and either were killed or maimed or had to live with it for the rest of their lives. And it all happened relatively recently, you know. It's, it's still the Second World War, the greatest calamity ever to engulf humanity is still really barely coming to terms with it. I'd love to think of that quote by a historian on the television once that I saw on the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution in 1989. And he was asked, look... No, 200 years. How do we look back? How do we assess the French Revolution now? And his reply was, hmm, a little bit early to tell. <laughs> and I think World War II is like that and will be for a long time. Michael, thank you for this chat today. I've really enjoyed learning more about the Battle for Milne Bay 1942 by reading your book, hearing more insight from yourself. And I encourage everyone listening to Go to a physical bricks and mortar real bookstore. Support your local bookstore. Uh, no bias. Absolutely. 
or if you're really stuck indoors, you can order online too. That's okay because it's out in print, ebook, audiobook, narrated by yourself, and that is Turning Point: The Battle for Milne Bay, 1942, by Michael Veach. Thank you very much for your time today, Michael. Thank you. Great, great to talk to you, Alex. You can find Michael on Facebook and Instagram by searching his name. You can find us there too at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.